0: Well, why don't we turn together to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 21. I don't know about you, but that video kind of nails it in a lot of ways, especially this year, in this year marked by separation, anxiety, and uncertainty. For the next four weeks, so much does it nail it that we're uh, that for the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, for the four Sundays of Advent, starting today, we'll be focusing on just this. Jim Murphy, Jeff Jefferyn, and I will be unpacking the truths that you've just seen up on the screens, truths that come directly from the Scripture. And today I'd like to focus on the hope of his salvation, uh, the final salvation that will come in heaven. Uh, last week we saw that this is what got a good part of what got the pilgrims through the crises of their day, just like it can get us through the crises of our day. This week we'll see that the hope of heaven is the reason for the season, the ultimate reason. So what better way to launch the season on this first Sunday of Ad- Advent because he was born in a manger so we could be with Him forever endeavor. That's why it's in so many of our Christmas carols, and it's always in the last verse of the Christmas carols because it's the goal of it all. You see it in a way in a manger, for instance, in the last verse, be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for what? Heaven to live with thee there. You'll find heaven in the last verse of him after him after him, Carol after Carol, it's in come thou long expected Jesus. It's in good Christian men rejoice. It's in it came upon a midlight clear, angels from the realm of glory, once in royal David City, uh as with gladness men of old, and you'll find the hope of heaven in the last verse again of thou dost leave thy throne. When the heavens shall ring and the angels sing at thy coming to victory, let thy voice call me home, saying, yet there is room, there is room at my side for thee. My heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. It's because of the hope of heaven that this Sunday, as you'll see, is going to be the joy Sunday of the Advent candle and we'll end the service by rejoicing in this hope. And it's not just in our Christmas carols, it's all through the scripture. In fact, did you know that for every one verse on the first coming, there are eight verses on the second coming? In other words, for every one verse you might say on the Christmas season, there are eight verses on the reason for the season. And for every one verse, by the way, on the atonement, there are two verses. On the second coming, because he was born not just to die, but to die so that we could live with him forever. That's why in Ephesians 1, after Paul enumerates all the spiritual blessings that came thanks to his first coming, he ends up in that same chapter at the end focusing on the second coming. Paul's first prayer in Ephesians is that we would understand what is the, the, the wonderful future he has promised to those who he has called. That is, what is the hope of his calling? Ephesians 1, 18. And what a rich and glorious inheritance he has in store for his people. According to Hebrews 11 is how the heroes of the faith made it through by confessing that they were strangers and exiles on the earth who desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to call them their God for he has prepared a what city for them yeah which as we saw last week is exactly what got the pilgrims through the crises of their day. If they looked behind them, there was a mighty ocean which they had passed, and ahead of them what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness. They had left that goodly and pleasant Dutch city of Leiden, which had been their resting place for above 11 years, and how did they do do all that? But they knew that they were pilgrims and strangers here below and looked not much at these things, but lifted up their eyes to heaven their dearest country, where God hath prepared for them, and here it is again, a city. And therein they quieted their spirits. God knows we need that these days. When it comes to heaven, it's all centered in a city. And God knows how much we need to quiet our spirits therein, especially in days marked by separation, anxiety, and uncertainty. I don't know about you, but COVID can get you down sometimes. There's just something in the air. It was a hard Thanksgiving for Julie and me. We spent it alone for the first time ever. And it's likely that we'll be alone for Christmas too. Not everyone does this and we don't judge anyone here, but at least we're in good company because that's what the Murphys are doing too. In fact, he'll be preaching in two weeks and he'll be doing it by video because he's very vulnerable to COVID and he wanted you to know that's the only reason he's not going to preach live. Get this, he's got four risk factors. And so he can't take the chance of being around people who aren't wearing masks. And so for a lot of reasons, I've been thinking a lot about a lot of things lately these days as I'm sure you have too. And I've been especially thinking about what Christ said 19 chapters before the city as we tee it up now in Revelation 2 and 3. Well over a year ago now we saw that in those chapters in 2 and 3 we have Christ's cliff notes summary of the Christian life. And essentially he says there that it is a momentary life. It's a momentary life of labor in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. It's a momentary life of labor in his indwelling power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. We saw that it's a mystery, but if you just keep on keeping on, you're building an eternity of treasure in his presence that awaits you, which is good to know if you're in a day marked by separation, anxiety, and uncertainty. And in light of the day we're in, I've been looking back to some foundational truths that have stood me in good stead over the years, some of which I've shared with some of you before, and I wanted to include you in some of what I've been thinking because the most important things bear repeating. The truths of the Bible are like rereading a good book, one that can speak to you in different ways through the years, can't it? And when when it comes to a good book, by the way, the advantage of growing old is that when you read it again, it can be like you've never read it before. I'm starting to get there. Some of you are really there. So for many reasons, I've been coming back here these days to the crowning chapters of Scripture and rereading them. Because when it comes to our treasure in heaven, here in Revelation 21 and 22, we have literally the mother load. The city that the pilgrims saw, the city that moved the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, the city wherein they quieted their spirits. For I saw, said John, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Lord willing, we're gonna see today, we'll see that someday we'll be at a loss for words, which will be, you know, for some people will be a true miracle. Some people we know. The sight of it will take our breath away and we're gonna be thinking, so that's what we made possible. John picks up his description again in verse 12. And it had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west and on the wall of the city there were 12 foundation stones and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We've gotta summarize here because there's not time to unpack every verse, but all that means this. It's the most important thing about these verses, that the New Jerusalem, and there are a lot of ways of getting at this, today I'd like to use this way. The New Jerusalem will be uh, historically rooted. Historically rooted, that is it'll be the fruit of what certain people did thousands of years before. And eventually it'll be millions of years before of what certain people did, you and me included. How so? Well, to begin with, as we read, names from old creation history will be written on the gates of New Jerusalem for all eternity. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Why are those names there? Will they be there over the gates that the rest of us will walk through? Well, it's because, as we know, salvation comes through the Jews. Access to the city comes through all the believing Jews down through the centuries, who did so many things. They copied the scripture stroke by stroke. They sacrificed bulls and goats looking to the final sacrifice. Jews like Tamar and Perez and Obed and Ruth and Jesse and David who ended up in the line and lineage of Christ without which he wouldn't have come. And thousands of others who God used in ways that we won't know till glory will be able to enter the city only because of what God did through the Jews. And someday they'll be saying, so that's what we made possible. Those open gates up here are because of all our work way back then down there. And on the foundation stones of the city will be the names of the 12 apostles. And they'll be saying, that's our work. The foundation up here is because of what we did down there. It was a foundational work, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. I laid the foundation, and another is now building upon it. He's talking about the foundation of the church, which now we see is also the foundation of the city. Because you see, as the church goes up, so does the city. they're 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 parallel projects you might say in parallel universes in time and eternity now that he's gone we know that christ is doing two things simultaneously he's already told us he's building a church and he's preparing a what a place and the two are connected it's like one of those drafting tools. My, my dad started out as an engineer before he became a missionary, and I learned about it 40, 50 years ago from him. They used to call it, some of you might remember this, a pantograph. A pantograph is where wherever you drew with one pen, whatever you drew was like mechanically linked through fulcrums and different things to another pen on another table that would draw the same picture except far larger to a different magnification which is exactly what's going on between these two projects that he's working on. That's why the writer of the Hebrews said that in coming to the church, we're actually coming to the city. He said, we have come to the city of the living God, Hebrews 13, the heavenly Jerusalem to the general assembly and the church. Two sides of the same coin, one and the same, each being in a different dimension. I wish there were time to unpack this from the rest of scripture, but it means that our work down here is making it possible too. As his will is done on earth through us, his will is done in heaven because we're in a partnership with him in more ways than we know. It's like one man wrote, my vocation is his hammer level and Uh, All A-W-L, because while we work, invisible walls and gateways are rising. While we push paper or dig dig, ditches, he builds his kingdom with our sweat. In that kingdom, there are no false starts, no futility. What looks like failure here will be treasure in heaven. Every uh, kingdom work, whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, stores up treasure. Every honest intention, every stumbling word of witness, every resistance to temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle toward obedience, every mumbled prayer, every act of perseverance in a year marked by separation, anxiety, and uncertainty. Everything, literally which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one, will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order, which will dawn with the sunrise of new Jerusalem. And it will be worth it all. Long ago, J.R.R. R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, and he also wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle that some of you may remember. It's about a man who was an artist, and his call in life was to plant intricate designs and pictures on the leaves of trees. They'd all wither and die and fall, and so what's the use? But God called him to do it, and just as he calls us to do things that don't make sense, and to go through a lot of things that don't make sense, even over Thanksgiving. And on top of that, he called him to do it in the middle of nowhere, where no one could see but it was the call of God, and so he obeyed. And he did it with all his heart as best he could, as unto the Lord. And each leaf, and many of them, were were like these little masterpieces. And to him, it often felt like the most unnecessary and unnoticed work you could ever do, but when he got to heaven, one of the most beautiful species of trees up there was one that was full of his leaves that never withered. And everyone noticed for all eternity. And all that he developed as a person through his obedience and his perseverance and through his blood, sweat, and tears, he took with him. Thanks to all those leaves that passed away like that, a momentary life of labor in his power. Thanks to that life. Leaf by nickel is the story of our lives. Except it's city by nickel. (laughs) And by you and me. There's so much more, but we must move on. Not only will it be historically rooted, it'll be physically real. With vast dimensions and only the best specifications. Verse 15 the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length and it is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements. God makes it clear here in verse 17 that these are not just angelic but human measurements. This is one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible if you look at it in context. The, the, that these dimensions are according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements which means that they are real measurements and not just you know, symbolic or mystical. Which means they're real and that's because it'll be a real city and not just this mystical state. And someday we'll see it. Someday what some say and what we can sometimes feel is a sky, a a sky, a a, a pie in the sky full of clouds and cherubs, you know, and harps and weightless angels and who would ever want to go to a place like that where all there is to do is to keep your nose clean. Someday it'll come out of the sky as the most celebrated project of all time and eternity thanks to this momentary life of labor in his power. And what a project. Because not only will it be very real, it's gonna be real big, right? I mean, if you take 1,500 miles of width by 1,500 miles of length, you get a total land area, Google it, a footprint, you might say, of 2.25 million square miles which is roughly the area of the continental United States. But that's just the first floor. Okay? You multiply that by 1,500 miles of height, and who knows how many floors, and you get more living space in (laughs) New Jerusalem than presently exists on planet Earth. These are real measurements. And this is a big deal you get a lot more living space. I mean, this old world has a land area of roughly 57,280,000 square miles, which means the new Jerusalem will have, and get this, 60 times more living space than on planet Earth, and that's assuming a mile between the floors. It'll be as much a country as a city. It's gonna be a whole world unto itself. And it'll have enough room not only for all the saints who have ever lived but for all the angels too as we read in Hebrews. And we'll know it'll be a garden city. It's gonna be the consummation of the garden of evil. So there will be more than enough room for you know, dedicated greenways and national parks and regions the size of countries for outdoor activities and pristine wilderness sanctuaries with mountains to climb and rivers to ford and maybe lakes to fish and who knows what else. Now, I don't, I don't care about the lakes to fish part. I hate fishing, but I've got to admit it. But, but it also says there's going to be a book there. There will be such a thing as books. And so clearly, that's a place worth going to if you're an indoor person. And if you're an outdoor person, you could say Colorado and everything in it eat your heart out. It'll be the best of the city and the country combined. It'll have all the creature comforts and the wilds of creation. It'll it'll have all that and a whole lot more. Now, if you were to take it in from a distance, actually, you'd have to take back off a fair way to take it all in, back several hundred miles, in fact. But looking at it all at once, the cityscape that you'd see would be unlike any other. The overall line would be up and down uh, with all sorts of mind-boggling architectural features, fantastic shapes that defy the laws of Old Testament physics. Uh, There will be a whole new laws of nature. I wish there were time to unpack this. Uh, Majestic ramparts stretching upwards, mounting ever higher somehow to a peak of 1,500 miles. Talk about an eyeful. It's no wonder Paul prayed that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, that we might know this hope. That's why Revelation 21 and 22 are there. At that distance, the wall of the city would be barely visible, just this bright line along the ground if you could see it at all. But if you made the long journey to the foot of the wall, you'd get quite a different view. In verse 12, it's called the Great and High Wall, and boy, is it. All of 72 yards in height, that says, three-quarters of a football field, topping out at 21 stories. At the base of the wall, if you were at the base, it would tower s- silently above you. And if you look to your right or into your left, it would stretch to either side as far as the eye could see to the vanishing point of both horizons. There's so much more, but suffice it to say, it'll be real big. It'll have vast dimensions, and it'll have only the best specifications. Verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city, were uh, uh, of the wall, were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophras, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Talk about a wall. You know, every good wall has a foundation. It's called a footer, if you've ever done construction. And it's usually like there's just this strip of concrete along the ground that no one sees. But the foundation for this wall We'll have 12 layers, multiple stories, one on top of the other, before you even get to the wall itself. And massive steps leading up to each gate. And these layers are not gonna be, you know, of rock or of masonry or of concrete, but rather great blocks of precious jewels, one after the other, like centuries at their posts permanently stationed, perfectly positioned in endless succession to the vanishing point of both horizons. And each layer will be a different color. And so if you step back, you'd see really, you'd see a rainbow. You'd see this whole spectrum of colors rising several stories above your head. And on top of that, the wall begins, which itself, as we read, is made of jasper, which is like this semi-transparent gem, like a diamond. And so the wall will reflect the light. It'll literally reflect the light coming from the inside. And what a light it'll be, especially through those jeweled foundations. For the glory of God, it says, from the inside will illumine the city. It'll be a luminous wall, a long, lustrous band on this multicolored foundation all around her like a wedding band, which is what it is. From the top to the bottom, this city will have only the best specifications, calling for features unheard of, unimaginable, unattainable here on earth. Yeah, I mean, we know what God can do with a whole creation, but we've yet to see a city whose architect and builder is God. Can you imagine? Whenever we build anything, there's always some trade-off between quality, you know, and utility and uh, cost. Even when price is no object, we don't have the technology to keep a structure from, from aging over time. But New Jerusalem will be built to last forever in mint condition. From the first layer of the foundation to the highest pinnacle, 1,500 miles above, truly, it'll be, as we call it, the eternal city. There'll be so much more. If we unpack verses 18 to 21, we'd see that it will be the capital of the eternal kingdom where we will oversee, and get this, the civilization of the new creation. And it'll be the source of the new creation its, and its centerpiece. It'll be new creation's resident heaven, the holy of holies, where God is. In fact, this is where it all climaxes with God himself in verses 22 and following because all of this, all that we've seen so far will be merely the frame for the picture. It'll be the setting for the pearl. The city will be a vessel for something of infinitely greater value and I'll have to skip over a lot here but it starts in verse 22. I, know, no, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, for the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it for the glory of God is there and has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Chapter 23, verse three, and the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and they shall see his face for God himself shall dwell among them. This will be by far the best part of the whole new creation, the presence of God himself in New Jerusalem (laughs) filling every cubic inch of those 3.37 billion cubic miles. It'll be a dream come true for those who have cultivated a heart for him here below. It'll be a dream come true for all who can say with David and with my mother, the one verse that was her life verse, whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 73, 25. So much more here, but John said, he went on to say, these words are trustworthy and true. And God himself said that at the very beginning before we saw New Jerusalem. These words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on them. You can anchor your soul here through whatever crisis you go through. And the heroes of the faith knew it too, and the authors of scripture and the pilgrims. And therein, they quieted their spirits in their day of separation and anxiety and uncertainty. Father, we wanna thank you For these truths. Thank you, as we ended the first part of the worship by singing, When I Stand in Glory, I will see His face. There I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. Thank you, that as we'll now sing, while we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky, but when traveling days are over, not a shadow not a sigh when we all get to heaven thank you in jesus name amen